This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! It's Rog. Oh, it's Monday morning, and we're live from New York City, where we are in the eye of the tiger, people. I hope you all had a weekend of meaning, despite the lack of Premier League football a.k.a. meaning, and a big hello to all of you Belarusian football fans joining us right now. As we say on the terraces, me and my mates at my favourite team, Shakur Soligorsk. Yep, being a lifelong fan there. Come on, you moles! What a thank you all, Belarusian football fan or just other football fan, for your messages your phone calls, your ravens, which have been pouring in over the weekend. They keep us going. They really do. In these times of darkness, your messages are the light. I love this one from Roger Hoskin. All hail fellow Rog. Oh, a Rog from Yukon, Canada. Oh, a hard Rog. He'd listen to my story from Friday's pod about my abject inability to make people understand my accent when I first moved to Chicago. They still can't understand me. And this Canadian Rog wrote, As a fellow Roger who was drawn to North America from Australia in my case, I too struggle with my name being misunderstood at Starbucks. Oh, that place is a hellscape. The pinnacle came when I made a dinner reservation at a popular Vancouver restaurant for my wife's birthday. I see where this is going. She arrived before me that evening, only to be told the restaurant had no reservation for a Roger. Oh. She called me, did the rational thing, berated me angrily. I'd failed her. I hadn't arranged for a meal on her birthday. How could I? But once I arrived, it was quickly discovered there was indeed a reservation with my phone number attached. But it was under the name Orgy. Oh, Orgy. That nickname has stuck ever since. Take care, courage, Rog, a.k.a. Orgy. Oh, Roger Hoskins, I think you've just given me my quarantine name. I love the name Orgy Bennett. Sounds like the kind of guy who DJ Joe Exotic's wedding. Oh, that's me, Orgy Bennett. A big week at MIB. Yep, Wednesday, the fault is in our stars. John Green will join us to talk Liverpool life and making meaning. Email us, tweet us, phone us any questions that you do have for John. We'll have another happy hour Zoom on Friday. I can't wait. Devo pod tomorrow. Oh, and a lot of chat shit get answers on WGFOP the board. Let's take a sting. Oh, that earworm is from Bradley McDevitt of Chapel Hill, mighty North Carolina. Yes, 646-450-9472. 646-450-9472. Call us, leave us your questions, and we will revel in their wonder. By the way, GFOPs, if you can create a WGFOP sting that involves Steve Bruce saying, Bacon! Bacon, do you see? Oh, we'll send you a patch. Email it to us at meninblazers at gmail.com. Email all your stings to meninblazers at gmail.com. Question one, producer Jonah. Hey, uh, this is John from Chicago, a uh, big Liverpool fan. And uh, I guess my just general question is about um, we're being forced to work from home, you know, for everyone's safety and everything. 
and I'm uh, cooped up in a pretty small studio apartment. Uh, do you guys have any, like, suggestions about how to avoid cabin fever? I feel like I've already developed it. Uh, love you guys. Stay safe. Timely question, John, from the greatest city in the world, Chicago, because that world feels as dark as a Cars for Kids commercial today. It really does. Heartbreaking news that I'm sure you've seen this morning. Manchester City confirmed that Pep Guardiola's mother, Dolores Salacario, passed away in Barcelona, aged 82. Another victim of the pandemic. May her memory be a blessing to Pep and his entire family. We do wish the Guardiolas, we wish everyone at Manchester City the deepest condolences to better days ahead. Oh, for all of us. I mean, many of you are grappling with cabin fever and it's totally, totally natural. Self-isolation life is an unnatural way for almost every human to live. We are social creatures. We crave contact. We crave the hubbub. And the secret really lies in the ability to self-organise. Can you create structure? Not everyone has this ability. And if you don't, I'd just say, be aware you don't. Be aware of that lack. Work out how to counter it. But days right now, they're like blank canvases to be crafted into masterpieces. So you've got to build in container store-like compartments into that day. Physical workout. Where does that go? Mental workout. Your work. Play. Rest, even schedule in boredom, downtime, film, book, Xbox, Budweiser, FaceTime. I mean, not all of this has to be solo. The truly bold can group organise. And I will say this, I'm saying this to myself because I've failed so far. There is no better time in the world to take up something new. Oh, the banjo people, let's all play the bloody banjo. Find a new source of mastery. Find your banjo. Find your sense of joy. I say this as if it's easy but thinking a little the hardest reality is how to do all of this at a time of great existential struggle time of true suffering for many of us i mean this is a time of immense challenge i will say for us your phone calls your messages they do sustain us each one contains the power of a thousand clop hugs and when i think of the spirit with which we're all trying to confront both cabin fever and life in general. It's embodied in this raven that we received over the weekend from GFOP Matthew Harris Brittingham, who wrote to us about a hike he took. I love this. Over the weekend with his three-year-old son, James. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. It might be Hames, which was suddenly curtailed when a red ant feasted on little James's butt cheek. How could you, red ant? And Matthew wrote to us, naturally, James cried the whole way back to the car, which was about a mile. And when we got to the car... An idea came to me. I just took James's face in my hands, channeled my inner Rodge, and just said, Courage. Matthew writes, James looked at me, wiped away his tears, and said in a tiny voice, I'm couraging. I'm couraging. The wisdom of babies. James is a three-year-old, people. I mean, he's Billy Gilmore age. And he's now given us the value we need to live our lives by right now. I'm couraging. I'm couraging. We're all going to need to channel that spirit in the next week. James, you are a hero, a sweet human being with a brave heart. And I don't mean in the dirty Mel Gibson sense of the word. This whole story, it does. It reminds me of one of my favourite Game of Thrones moments. The quote, Bran thought about it. Can a man still be brave if he's afraid? And his father said to him, 
that's the only time a man can be brave. Oh, James, may we all be couraging this week. Question number two. Rog, Rob Neef, Oakville, Ontario, north of the wall, avid Manchester United supporter. I've just been listening to the latest podcast, and I heard that uh, Dave was planning on doing a dry April, as am I, coincidentally. And it got me to thinking, what would be the hardest thing for some of the most noteworthy Premier League players, managers, and referees to give up for April? That's my question. Hoping to get an answer. Courage. Oh, Rob from Ontario. You make this possibly the single most Canadian men in blazers. Well, at least since we have Mike Myers on. What is the hardest thing for the players to give up for April? Well, until yesterday morning, my answer to that would have been money. I mean, the big storyline in English football right now, and it's not a pretty one, it's the Cold War breaking out between the Premier League, between the clubs, the executives, and the Players' Union, the Professional Footballers' Association. And this kind of Cold War, it's approaching Bay of Pigs level. The issue is pay cuts. Other clubs around the world have agreed on salary deferment. Barcelona's team, they took a 70% pay cut. So the Catalan club could continue to pay non-playing staff while revenue's not coming in. And on Friday, the clubs proposed an across-the-board, every-team 30% player wage cut. But the players responded they don't believe their employers. They're actually all starting to believe this is just an opportunistic attempt by the teams, by the clubs, by the executives to cost cut in bad faith. The players have even said we will donate large amounts of cash directly to the National Health Service. That's the British public hospital system. But we're not prepared to do so right into the pockets of owners who in many cases are billionaires. This is a oh, this is a degrading standoff. And it's forced the clubs to negotiate chaotically. It's going to go down on an individual club by club basis. I will say, for what it's worth, this is a bad look for both sides. It's a public relations standoff, a battle played out against a nation suffering. Britain, right now, really in the grip of the pandemic. And football, football's in a real danger of playing out its financial melodrama, airing its dirty laundry at this time, this context. I mean, it's in danger of making everyone, clubs, owners, players look bloody awful one quick note i will say it's important to remember this for every oil money or oligarch owned club the smaller entities like norwich like brighton and hove albion that run almost kind of green bay packer style much smaller budgets burnley have talked about a loss of between 61 and a half million to 120 million from this struggle that that kind of money for a club like burnley could be brutally transformative but like i say rob i would have said money is the thing professional footballers would have had the hardest time giving up but that was until sunday when news broke that manchester city's kyle walker why always me kyle walker became the latest football star to do the one two the issuing of a heartfelt stay at home plea and then be caught immediately breaking self-isolation this time Carl Walker one-upping Jack Grealish he just went out for an all-night lockdown party Carl Walker he decided to hire escorts for a tabloid catnip sex party according to the British Red Tops oh Orgy Bennett get in there I've just got one humble suggestion to each footballer and I know you're all listening to this if you're planning to tweet a be safe be sensible stay inside video just at the same time as you post it just make it a thread 
and attach a groveling apology video at the same time for your inevitable indiscretion. Do them both. Post them side by side. Just save all of our time, would you? Pregunta tres, por favor, producer Jonah. Hello, Roger. This is James Stewart, currently in Brooklyn, New York. I'm an Ipswich Town fan. Come on the tractor, boys. My question for you, Roger, is do you ever or have you ever had a weak moment where you think to yourself, life will be so much easier if indeed I was a Liverpool fan? Come on, be honest. Do you seriously wish you were a Red? Thank you and be safe. James, to be honest, I feel like every pod I've ever taped is some kind of variation of an answer to this question. And you know, I've said this before, I also don't think you can be hypothetical about history. We can't try and work out what would have happened. I mean, I often think, would the Holocaust have ended sooner if the plot against Hitler had worked? Who can truly say for sure? Having said that, I taped interviews with the Liverpool fan channel, the Redmond TV, and then Everton channel, Toffee TV last week, and the cumulative experience of doing both has really made me realise how much of my identity is just a negative impression of Liverpool fandom. I mean, as an Evertonian, lifelong, Liverpool are inextricably the Ying to my Andrew Yang, the AC to my DC, or really my DCL. See... I grew up in the dark yet magical Liverpool of the 1980s. I'm writing a lot about this at the moment as I'm trying to deal with the, the, the memoir that I'm writing. And this was a time when Liverpool FC, a time of horror, Liverpool won so many bloody trophies. It, it felt like perpetually the team were on a permanent victory parade through the city streets showing off some latest piece of trinket or silverware. And as a third generation Everton fan in his formative years when this stuff really, really mattered, Watching Liverpool stars perpetually cruise by at the bottom of my road. They went right down the bottom of my road on an open top bus with fans cheering their every move. It was a searing sight. The players lolling casually around the cup on the front of the upper deck of that bus, a pose that kind of suggested, yeah, we didn't really even have to break sweat to win this bad boy. The victors would occasionally chuck down packets of dentine, chewing gum, I guess sponsored chewing gum. Never quite understood why they threw the chewing gum at us, but they were throwing them to their adoring fans and we'd ruck for them. Whenever a packet came down, you'd fight for it and I'd always grab a packet. But because the dentine, the booty, was associated with the enemy, Liverpool, I could never bring myself to consume it in public. I'd pocket it. I'd go home and chomp it later at night, overwhelmed by guilt in the privacy of my own bedroom. Picture young Rog in a single bed, chomping away, surrounded by posters of grim-faced Everton heroes late into the night. Oh, such mixed emotions. Then Manchester United swung in, knocked Liverpool off their perch. And in 1993, my quandary disappeared almost overnight, I will say, as did the free chewing gum. Liverpool, they couldn't win a title, seemingly forever. Football became bloated, financial, just all about the money. United, Chelsea and then Manchester City quickly learnt to understand how to run the game. Liverpool became faded. They became an impotent threat, defanged. I love those days when Liverpool Football Club became English football's equivalent of grey gardens. So back in the 80s, when a flock of seagulls fleetingly ruled the world, Google them people. And I'm going to segue for one second. Space Age Love Song is still a total banger. But back then, when Liverpool were at their peak, that, that was the peak when I resented Liverpool's glory to my very core. Hate 
If I, if I experienced hate, that was it. I was too young to know better. I mean, Liverpool, to me then, philosophically, they felt like an absolute wrong. And practically, that condemned me. I was automatically on the losing end of age-old bragging rights debate. You know, we, yes, Everton had glorious moments in the league, in the cup, even in European competition. Talked about this on the pod with my mate Jamie uh, the week before last. Liverpool always seemed to find a way to do us. Yeah, as much even then as I abhorred Liverpool's success. And this has remained partially true, I'd say, this season. I couldn't help but adore what the club was doing for our city. A simmering, defiant and, to me, beautiful city of Liverpool. You've got to understand, in the 1980s, Liverpool was economically troubled. Yet Liverpool and Everton made English football's capital of sport. It was just an intoxicating halo that reinforced the uniqueness of the city. First established by the Beatles, and then came football, then came music, and it gave our town an outside global recognition that other urban areas, you know, Birmingham, no one knows Birmingham, Newcastle, football fans know Newcastle, even Manchester at that time didn't possess the kind of swagger we had. And wherever you were in the world, you benefited from that halo. I remember being as a high schooler, something about 16, and I went across Europe on the train. I was outside Barcelona. train was so slow. And then I realised why it was being slow, because a band of Real Madrid hooligans were going right down the train, carriage to carriage, breaking every window, menacing every passenger in compartment after compartment. You could hear them coming closer, closer, closer. Total carnage. I was in a carriage on my own with two childhood mates from home. One of them was Jamie, God love. I mean, none of us, do I need to say this, was blessed with fighting powers. And just that sound, the smash glass, that graffiti spray being painted on windows crept ever nearer. Not going to lie. We may or may not have shat our pants as we desperately flicked through our tour guide trying to work out how to scream, not in the face, not in the face, in Espanol. Then suddenly the Madridistas ripped open our compartment door, bandanas covered their faces. Where are you from? They screamed. Liverpool, we stammered back. The boys looked at each other, lowered their bandanas and then shook our hands respectfully. Apologised for making a noise, apologised for troubling us, exited the compartment and then proceeded to create absolute carnage in the carriage next door. That is the respect Liverpool had that three of the least able to fight human beings in the world were given that kind of respect in a moment. My God, we still crapped our pants, but we really needed it. So that's what you've got complicated city that's both stigmatised for the craziness which engulfed it in the 1980s but also admired for it, loved for it, feared for it. You know, a seafaring town that looks out to the Atlantic. Liverpool has always dreamed of itself less as English and more either the capital of Ireland or the 51st American state. There's a guy that went to my school, became a a very famous orchestra conductor, gent called Simon Rattle, great son of the city. And he really captured the essence of what I'm trying to say when he said, New York is the only other place comparable to Liverpool. You don't like Liverpool. You either love it or you loathe it. And I don't know anyone who loathes it and comes from it. You don't have middle message feelings about Liverpool. The minute I get off the train, he said, the minute I hear the accent, oh, I'm sold. And that James Stewart of Brooklyn, better than anything I could come up with, that sums up exactly how I feel to this day. You are listening to Chat Shit, Get Answers on WGFOP The Bald, producer Jonah, a sting. 
John Wesley of Rhode Island, thank you for some classic banjo. We've got time for one more question. It's actually one we've had a number of times. I'm encouraging. Hi, Raj. My name is Annie. I live in Sacramento, California, but I'm originally from North Carolina, so my team is the North Carolina Courage. I also love Chelsea women and kind of any women's team. Uh, My question is, do you have any Passover pandemic tips? Wash your hands and courage. Hi, Raj. This is Justin Sadel. I'm a huge Tottenham fan from Lexington, Kentucky, uh, and a fellow member of the tribe. And my question for you is, with the holiday Passover coming up in a couple weeks where we normally celebrate freedom, what are your thoughts on how we celebrate that this year when we are not as free as we normally are? Thank you. Oh, yes, it's that time of year again. Easter and Passover go together like Mike Dean and Narcissistic Personality Disorder. Passover, the holiday which marks the liberation of the Israelites from pyramid building, Egyptian slavery. And to be candid up front, I want to make it clear, I've said this on the pod, I'm not a very spiritual person. But as we've gotten closer to Passover with its 10 plagues, even I, even I've thought a lot in this time of pandemic about the Egyptians' experience with those plagues. I wonder, when they're first struck by blood, I think that was the first plague, I wonder if, like, young Egyptian bros were all like, who cares? We're going to keep drinking in bars. We're not going to let the plague of blood ruin my spring break. And I imagine, oh, they probably laughed off the second plague too. Frogs. Can't show weakness to frogs. You've got to show war spirit, the same spirit that our ancestors used to beat up the Hittites and the Canaanites. And I wonder, did it take boils? Did it take darkness until they were like, oh my God, this, this is real. This is terrible. We've got to listen to Egyptian Dr. Fauci and flatten the effing curve. So I guess I am a little more spiritual than I imagined. And GFOP Mark Dolce wrote in to think about spirituality in a way I can relate to. He wrote that this year, bereft as we are without football, the diversion that gives us so much joy and sorrow in equal measure made me think of the William James quote at the beginning of Simon Critchley's book, my mate, what we think about when we think about soccer. This is William James who says, I'm sorry for the boy or girl or man or woman who's not been touched by the spell of this mysterious sensorial life with its irrationality. If you like to call it, it's vigilance and it's supreme felicity. The holidays of life are, or at least should be, covered with just this kind of magically irresponsible spell. Oh, and Mark Dolce writes, that's it. I think Premier League football is, for so many of us, that magically irresponsible spell. When you put it like that, even I can connect, even I can understand, even I can appreciate. So I'd say the following. There is a sort of tragic irony to celebrating liberation, freedom when you're in quarantine, to celebrate the ability to do anything when we're all locked down. I mean, this is a holiday about gathering as well. I mean, this is really a a holiday about coming together on so many different levels. The, the, The celebration of the gathering of Exodus, the celebration of the gathering of our families and our friends and our communities, not just those in the present, 
but those in the past. But you normally sit around the table with dozens of people, friends, family, family who are friends, the works. And at the beginning of, of the first night, we say, all those who are hungry, let them enter and eat. All those who are in need, let them come celebrate. I mean, it's almost, as I say that, it's like, what is the point of doing this in isolation? What? What are we celebrating when we ourselves aren't free? And would it even be, would it even be appropriate to celebrate right now? But the thing is, to me, Passover is never just a celebration. We spend the first half of Seder talking about the hardship, almost reveling in it before we get to talk about liberation. And there's a reason for that, because there's a moment in the first night I always personally savour, and this year more than ever, during the celebration of Passover, it said every generation, each person must see themselves as if they themselves were taken out of Egypt. And you always ask everyone at the table to envision their own adversity before appreciating their freedom. That is something that everyone is going to be rife with. That's going to be meaningful for even me, who is the least spiritual human being in the world. It's an epoch-spanning, multi-generational sense of mutual suffering and the related, oh, please God, liberation. My producer Miranda, she wrote something beautiful to me when I asked her about this question. She wrote, we may all be scattered and there are moments when we are all totally afraid. That is, that is truly human right now. We may all be looking ahead to a time when things will be better than they are right now. She writes, but to me, Passover is a wonderful opportunity to pause and acknowledge that. It's a chance to commune with all those who came before us, to add our suffering to the pile and say this, and I love this. Oh, I am freer than they were. And for that, I celebrate. And next year, I will be, we all will be even more free. What a beautiful notion. That's it. Orgy Bennett goes, well, a bit Jerry Falwell there. My God, we have covered all the bases on this episode of Chat Shit Get Answered on WGFOP The Bald. Call us with your questions, 646-450-9742. Give us a bell. Oh, we'll be back with Davo tomorrow. Until then, I'm going to finish by raising my first third bud of the day in your direction, dear GFOPs, and leave you with some words of inspiration from the mighty Questlove. I love this. In his book, Mo Meta Blues, Questlove writes, how do you plan a rebirth? I'm not sure you do. You just stand in the darkness until you can't endure it any longer. And then you move forward until you're standing in the light. Oh, Questlove, I'm couraging.